Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Uh, Today we get to celebrate, really, um, with a new series, The Coming of Our Savior, Jesus. And really, what a great what a great thing for us to be able to celebrate uh, together. Before I do that, I'll just mention uh, just something that maybe some of you may or may not know about me, but um, my wife and I, we adopted two of our kids from China. Um, and we, it really truly has been one of the greatest blessings of our life, um, that whole adoption process, the adoption journey, and the kids that are in our family uh, are really, really, truly uh, just a great blessing to our lives. But you may or may not know this, that, that adoption, there's quite a process to adoption. And there's a long wait um, when it comes to adoption. My wife and I adopted from China, so we adopted internationally. And the expected time frame of waiting um, from, for ado- ado- the whole adoption process back then, and probably still is today, is, it was two to five years process. So a long time. And so with that, there's a process of an application. It's a very thorough process. And then once that gets approved, then there's the, the process of, of getting matched with a child. And that can take some time and, um, before you're, you're matched with somebody. And then after you're matched, then there's the whole approval process that has to be finalized. And then after that, for us, there's the whole uh, travel (laughs) arrangements that have to be made to go over there. So there's a long time. And the challenge with that, of course, is the moment that you get matched with a child, you're given a name and a picture and a description, and then you have to wait. And that's a real challenge. See, when we were matched with our, our first uh, daughter, our, with, with Kai, we were given some pictures from the orphanage where she was at. And I'll just show you a couple of those pictures that we had. Here's a picture of her from the orphanage that was sent to us. It's one of the very first ones we got. And then we got a, a few other ones I'll show you. Um, there's another picture of her um, playing <laughs> this is a very serious look here. We're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, but there's a, there's a few other here. There's one with her, one of the nannies at the orphanage um, there where she was, she was at in China. And then another one of her just being there in their, their playroom. Lots of pictures taken there. Now, here's the deal. When we received these photos, um, we, what do you think we did with them? We cherished them. We studied them. We, we had whole narratives of like, what is, she, what is she thinking or what's going on? And we had all these things. But the problem with that is, one, we, we, we loved it, and, but the problem with it was we, we didn't really know what she was like. We had a picture. We had a picture of what she looked like, but we really wondered all the time, what is she like? What's her personality like? How does she interact with people? What makes her smile and laugh and what doesn't? What does she like to play with? What are her interests? We couldn't know all these things from a picture, a one-dimensional picture, just that. And so we could not wait to meet her in the flesh where we can meet her in person. And eventually, after the course of time and all the approvals go through and the travel process is made, we were able to fly over and meet her in China. And it was incredible. Incredible blessing because now this little girl that we had a few, you know, a paragraph description of, a little bit of medical history, and a couple of pictures we got to meet in person, in the flesh. We got to hold her. We got to embrace her. She's now part of our family. And it's a, 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 a truly amazing thing. In fact, I brought a picture of her first Christmas with our other two kids, Jay and Renee, at the time. So this is a picture of her now in our home, in the flesh. In person, so fantastic, so amazing. It, it moves me even now thinking about it and seeing these pictures, how special it was to go from a picture to a person. 
What we get to do in this Christmas season is to celebrate the fact that Jesus came to be with us as a person. We get to celebrate this, the wonder of the incarnation. And the incarnation, it's a theological term, but right in the middle of this word incarnation um, is you hear, you hear the word carne. You know that word? It's, it's a Latin word. It means uh, flesh, meat. Some of you are carnivores, right? You like meat, substance. That's the whole concept that God became man and he dwelt among us. Substance, the, the real thing that God entered in is a, wonder, it's a wonderful thing. At Christmas time, we get to celebrate the fact that God came to be with us. And this is so good because it helps us understand who God is and what he's like, that he entered into humanity. The eternal God entered into time and space so that God could become comprehensible to us. It's a fantastic truth. And throughout your life, you're going to run into people who are going to tell you what they think God is like. It usually goes like this. Someone, you'll have a conversation with them, and they'll say something like, well, I've always thought God is like, and then they fill in the blank with some wacky idea, and you're like, okay. And rather than having to sort out what people think and what you're trying to figure out, here's the, here's the good news. We don't have to guess and wonder what God is like. We can know what God is like through the person of Jesus Christ. That's incredible. That we can know who he is. In fact, Jesus said this, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus, God becoming man, helps us understand who God is, what he's like, and what he came to do, ultimately to be our Savior. This is what we get to celebrate at Christmas time. And then this is what we're going to be celebrating in the course of this series. But in order for us to understand, again, the wonder of the incarnation, we have to begin with the fact that Jesus entered into human, uh, history. And so that's what we're going to begin. The fact that Jesus entered into history. And this is a wonderful truth about Scripture that I think is important for us to know and for, for us to recognize that, that Scripture gives us history. Sometimes I hear people talk about the Bible and they'll say, oh, you know, these Bible stories or they'll talk about Bible stories. It always makes me a little bit nervous because people say Bible stories as easily as they would say fairy tales. But let me tell you something. The Bible is not a tale. The Bible is, is historical uh, documents. It, it, is, it is true and genuine. And, and that's where, where we get to start. Because what um, we get to recognize, in, and we're going to start with the, the, the book of Matthew, because in it, Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus was a real historical person who entered into history, and it changed the history of the world, and it can change your personal history as well. And so Matthew helps us with that. In fact, we're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 1. If you have your Bible, I'll just invite you to find that now. Um, if you don't have your Bible, hopefully you have the handout you received on your way here has the passage printed for you. But Matthew is an incredible um, book because it's the first book of the New Testament. That is, it is the book that is the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, they were given a, a promise that a Messiah was to come. They were given pictures of what the Messiah would look like. They were given hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah. Matthew gets to say, guess what? The promise was kept. The prophecies have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's powerful. It's incredible. Jesus entered into um, history, into humanity. And so that's what we get to pick up here in Matthew chapter 1. And so once you find it, what I'd like to do is just invite you to please stand. We're going to read this passage here beginning in Matthew chapter 1. 
uh, beginning in verse 1 all the way down to verse 17. And as you look at this passage, it's very likely that you look at it and go, oh man, this is the, this is the part of the Bible I typically skip, right? Because you just see a bunch of names here and you're like, or the, this is the part of the Bible that I, I want to read when I want to take a nap. Um, <laughs> but I just want to invite you to hang in there with me um, and um, let's just, let's read this together and we'll, we'll really see what it is that God has for us. It really can be very powerful here in this, in this genealogy of Jesus. So let's read it. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, all the way down to verse 17. It says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of uh, Nash, uh, sorry, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Okay, are you with me so far? <laughs> Let's keep going. Part two here. David was the father of Solomon, um, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father uh, of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Okay, if this doesn't put you in the Christmas mood, I don't know what will, right? (laughs) Go ahead and have a seat. (laughs) Okay, I realize there's a lot to take in there, Um, and good job for sticking in it with me. And what I really want you to see is how helpful this genealogy can really be in in understanding uh, the great good news about Jesus Christ. Um, But let me just begin with verse 1, and I'll just point out a few things as we go along. First of all, I'll start with this. Um, In in verse 1 of Matthew, this is the very beginning of this book. And so what I maybe want to just begin just for a moment with is begin with a comparison of the titles, how we as a modern reader look at the book of Matthew and title it, and how the um, original readers would have seen as the title of this book. And so for us, the modern reader today, as we look at the, the, the account that Matthew wrote, we title it, what do we title it? We title it Matthew. That's what we title it. This was the book that Matthew wrote. That's the title. Sometimes we use maybe a little bit longer term, the gospel of Matthew or the the good news according to Matthew. The gospel basically just means good news. And so we might use that phrase, but we basically, we come to to title this book, uh, the book of Matthew, which is helpful actually, because it helps us understand that um, this was a real person who spent real time with a real Jesus and he documents it. 
So he is one of uh, four authorized biographies. This is one of four authorized biographies of Jesus. And so this is very, very helpful. It helps us understand this is a historical Jesus, historical document by a historical person who was with him at the time and, and wrote, wrote these things down. So this is helpful. The question that many people have, or you may have, is, but who is Matthew? And why is he important? And so let me just take a, a moment to talk a little bit about Matthew with you before we move on, because I think it'll, again, help you understand this passage and, and really the whole overall uh, book of Matthew. Matthew um, doesn't uh, actually tell us very much about himself in his own book. And when he does speak about himself, he usually talks about his own sinful past. Um, but it's, it's Mark and Luke that help us understand um, who Matthew is. And it's Mark and Luke that help us understand his original occupation and his original name. His original occupation, his job, um, his original job was a tax collector. Mark and Luke help us understand that, that he was a tax collector. And, and tax collectors, as you know, in, in, in no part of human history have they been popular, have they? But in ancient Israel, they were especially despised. And they were especially despised in ancient Israel because tax collectors um, would work for the Roman government. That is, they, would then, they were uh, charged with taxing their neighbors, their Jewish brothers and sisters, and then give it to the Roman oppressors. And so they were not popular, not only because they were tax collectors, but because they were considered traitors. And the whole re- way that tax collectors were able to get their job is they would work out a scam with the Roman authorities, and so they were thieves. So not only were they uh, tax collectors and traders, they were thieves. And so they were despised. Rabbis would say, hey, you know what? They would, they would say, don't even be near one, because if you're even near a tax collector, you would be polluted. That's how despised they were. And, so, and yet, yet uh, this, is, this is who he is and his job. So uh, that's what we know about Levi and his, his job. Uh, but then we also know something about his name from Mark and Luke as well, that his original name was Levi. And the name Levi is actually a very honored uh, Jewish name. The name Levi, all the priests would, would trace their lineage back to Levi um, in order to be a priest. And so it was a very honored a Jewish name. But, Lee, but Matthew pretty much took this honored name, this Jewish name, and he threw it in the trash when he took on the job of being a tax collector. <laughs> and so he, 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 um, he disgraced the, this beautifully honored name. Now, when Matthew comes to know Christ, um, his name is changed, and it's Jesus who gives him the name Matthew, which means gift of God. And which is an amazing thing, Matthew never goes back to using Levi as a name. In fact, it's always Matthew going forward. Everyone calls him Matthew, which is, there's a lesson in that too. That the, the lesson is this, that we find our true identity in Christ. And Matthew found his true identity in Jesus Christ, and it changed him. Matthew does speak about his calling, and when he first encounters Christ and chooses to, and he, and he follows him. He speaks about it in Matthew chapter 9, if you want to read, that, read it later. Um, Matthew talks about it. So Jesus goes to the tax collector's booth, and he goes right up to uh, Matthew, and he says, come follow me. And Matthew responds, and he follows Jesus. What's remarkable is that Jesus goes to a tax collector's booth, which helps you understand and helps me understand, helps us understand that Jesus seek, is seeking lost people. 
And Jesus is seeking people that others despise, others dismiss, that are marginalized, that are on the outside, that we think are too far from God. Jesus is seeking lost people. You need to hear that. I need to hear that. And Jesus calls Matthew and Matthew responds. But we also need to hear and you need to understand that Matthew didn't, um, it wasn't the first encounter that he had with Jesus. See, Matthew had been on the, in, a, in a tax collector's booth and he'd been watching the teaching ministry of Jesus. For months and months, he'd been hearing the teaching. He'd been witnessing what Jesus was doing. And so months and months and months go by and then Jesus taps on his shoulder and says, come follow me. And I think this is important for us to get because I know that many of you here would love it if Jesus came up to one of your family members and tapped them on the shoulder and said, come follow me, right? You want that. You long for that. But here's what you need to know, that sometimes it may not happen immediately. For Matthew, it took months and months and months. And for many of you in your family, with your friendships, it's going to take time. There's a process. And I know that at this Christmas season, what we do is we gather together with family and friends and we, we have Christmas parties. And it's your opportunity to show and share what Christmas is really all about. And I know that there's times you can be discouraged because you're thinking to yourself, man, this is the 19th year in a row that we've read the Christmas story. And Uncle, Uncle Albert has never shown any interest. But you never know. This may be the year that Jesus taps Uncle Albert on the shoulder and he chooses to follow him. So stay at it. Don't give up. Many of you have invited friends to Christmas Eve service here at South Hills Church and you've invited people before and then afterwards you're disappointed because it just didn't seem to take with them. Guess what? Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep reaching. Keep inviting God, there's a process, and, and sometimes it may not, it, it, there's a process that God is going through, and sometimes it takes time for, for that moment where Jesus calls and they respond. So we don't give up. That's the story of Matthew. That's the story for many of you, and maybe for your friends and family as well. We don't give up, and Jesus doesn't give up. He's seeking the lost, and here we see Matthew respond. Now, it's interesting. When Matthew responds to Jesus, he leaves everything behind except for one thing that he takes with him. He takes with him his pen. Matthew takes with him his pen. And this is important because Matthew, as a, as a tax collector, knew how to read and write. And you know what? Lots of people in that culture, in that time, did not know how to read and write. But Matthew, when he followed Jesus, brought his pen with him. And he used it to write the gospel account. He followed Jesus around and he started taking notes, what Jesus was saying, what Jesus was doing, and he started writing it down. And isn't it remarkable that, that Matthew, the tax collector, the traitor, the thief, becomes the gospel writer? Isn't that fantastic? Here's the truth with this as well, that God can redeem and take the very things in our past, the things that maybe we're ashamed of, and he can use it when we put it in his hands for his purposes and his glory. And he can change things. He can use who you are. He used Matthew's ability to write because he'd been cooking the books for a long time, you know, as an accountant. He's like, okay, but you know, take, take careful notes. And all of a sudden, bang, wow, it's used for great eternal purposes. We saw that in the life of Moses, right? 
where God had been shaping Moses. Moses gets to the burning bush moment, and God says to Moses, what's in your hand? And he's like, ah, it's a shepherd's staff. And as an, you know, he's like, I used to be a prince of Egypt, and now I'm a despised shepherd. And it was a despicable trade to be a shepherd for the Egyptians. And God says to Moses, you take that staff with you. And that staff became the staff of God, a symbol that God was with him, that he had shaped him, that he was using the things in his life that he thought were shameful for God's purposes to shepherd and lead his people from slavery to freedom. This is what God does. When we come to him and we, transfer, we give our, surrender our lives to him, he can take the very things of our past, the very things that we're ashamed of, the very things that we, that we have, that we don't even know where they fit, and God can use them for his great purposes. Isn't this good news? This is what we see in Matthew's life, and it can be true in your life as well. So he comes and he, um, he, comes and he follows Jesus, and this is uh, an important, important truth. Now, um, that's how we see, just to go back, we see the title and we see Matthew and we learn about Matthew. And it's important. Matthew is a historical person who writes about a historical Jesus. Now, the original reader, the, the, the Jewish person who's reading this, they would look at Matthew's account and they would say what, to, in order for them to understand what the title is, they would look to the verse, first verse, the first statement. Because in many, many documents in, in, in ancient times, the title was the very first statement, the very first sentence, and that is the case here. This is the title that the original Jewish audience would have read and said, this is what the book is about. Let me read it for you. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's three things that Matthew wants to convey in his book. This is the title of his book. Here's what he wants to convey. First of all, he wants to convey that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior, the one is to come, the one that's prophesied about. He is the one who is now here. Uh, and then not only that, he wants to convey that he's the son of David, that he's in the royal line of David. He's the king, the king who's to be on the throne forever. And so he wants the Jewish readers especially to understand he is the king that God promised to David. And then he's the son of Abraham. That is, he is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham, that he would, from him would be a, uh, be a blessing and blessing to all nations. And so you see both parts, right? The king for the Jewish people, King David, but then you see that he's the promise uh, fulfilled through Abraham, the, through all nations. And so we see that, and Matthew particularly wants us to understand the church, the church for all people because of through faith in Christ. This is what he, the title of his book is all about, and it's so important for us to see. Um, so then the question then becomes, okay, so uh, what about the genealogy? What about all these names, and why are they so significant? And I'll just say this, that the, the genealogies for us, when we come across them, they may be uninteresting or boring or like, man, this, this, is, this is what I would read to put myself in a coma. Um, or I don't know, whatever, however you view the genealogies. Um, it, it, we don't see it as, as so significant or important, but for this culture, and for many cultures, by the way, genealogies are very, very significant. They're very important. My guess is many of you probably couldn't name your great-great-grandparents or really anyone um, previous to that. And many of you are saying, I'm okay with that. I, I don't really need to know all of that history and all that lineage. And, and I get that. That is, unless you're uh, coming from a royal family. And royalty, genealogy is very, very important. Because the way that the monarchy works, right? You, are, you receive power not by vote or by victory, but by birth. 
And so for royal families, it is absolutely essential that you know your lineage and your background. And Jesus is of royal descent. And Matthew wants his Jewish readers to know that because no Jewish reader would take Jesus' claims to be the Messiah seriously if he wasn't descended from David. Does that make sense? And so this was absolutely fundamental for a Jewish reader. This is the starting point. They wouldn't read further in the book about Jesus' great works and teachings if, he doesn't, if he's claiming to be Messiah, but not from the royal line. And so it's absolutely essential. One commentator says it this way. Um, he says, it is important not to think that this is a waste of time. For many cultures, ancient and modern, and certainly in the Jewish world of Matthew's day, this genealogy was the equivalent of a roll of drums, a fanfare of trumpets, and a town crier calling for attention. Um, any first century Jew would find this family tree both impressive and compelling. So Matthew says, listen, this Jesus is a, a real person. He's, uh, he has a real history. He's from the, the line of David. But not only that, he's the fulfillment of the promise that was given to Abraham. Oh, wow. So any skeptic who was a Jew, all of a sudden you have their ear. And so this is so important for him to get. Now, then we get to then, of course, all the names of the genealogy. And um, there's a lot there. And I um, would love to be able to teach you about all the different names in this genealogy, all 42 of them, and just spend a few moments talking about each and every person because there's so much to be learned from every single person there. But if I did that, we'd be done sometime by Christmas. Um, and we'd no longer be friends, okay? So <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But what I want to do is I want to kind of a jump ahead to verse 17 so you can kind of see the big picture of this genealogy and how Matthew formats it because it's really, really important for us to see. So verse 17, jumping down, this is um, important. In verse 17 it says, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So there's three different parts that he breaks this gene genealogy into. Three different parts of 14. So 14, 14, 14. You see that, don't you? And then when you, what you see, and it's laid out for you in, in your Bible perhaps or on the handout, you see these three different sections, and I'll just highlight them for you. Verses 1 through 6, it's Abraham to David. And then 6 through 11, it's David to the exile. And then 12 through 16, it's the exile to Jesus, the Messiah. So Matthew breaks it down into three different parts. And within those three different parts, there's 14 generations. You're like, whoa, threes and um, 14, and what's with all the numbers? Well, let me tell you, Matthew's a numbers guy, right? And he does this on purpose. And here's what I want you to do, and I just hang with me for a moment, because I want you to see how helpful Matthew is and what he's trying to do. Matthew wants um, his Jewish audience, again, to know that Jesus is descended from the line of David, but he also wants to equip the Jewish readers to be able to talk with their friends and be able to say to them, guess what? This, this is the son of David. Jesus is the son of David. Let me l tell you his genealogy and demonstrate it to you, prove you, give you documented proof that Jesus is coming from, is in that, that, that royal line. But if you may recall, and it's not hard to think about, they are um, much more of an oral culture back then, right? 
They don't have digital, you know, web pages that we can go to that has it all listed out for us, or a smartphone that we can have the, you know, oh, there's the genealogy, I can whip it right up. They um, don't have as many books as we have. They're books, but not like we have books. And so this isn't something that they can just access immediately. So what they have to do is they have to memorize it. They have to put lots of information into their brain, and they have to memorize it if they're going to be able to give defense to their friends about Jesus, that he is the son of David. And so they have to put all this stuff in their head. And Matthew wants to help them with that. And so he comes up with a, a way to help them remember the genealogy of Jesus. So he puts it in 14s and groups of threes. So it helps them. And he uses the name David, by the way, as a kind of a numeric um, a memorization point to help them with these, these, uh, ge- this genealogy. And this is where it gets interesting. So just hang with me for a moment. Matthew uses David, and the, way, the reason why I say he uses the name David is because um, in the Hebrew language, they don't have numeric symbols. They have an alphabet, um, A, B, C, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Daleth, they, they have their alphabet, but they don't have a numeric symbol like we do in our English language. We borrowed from the Arab, Arabic, we have numeric symbols and an alphabet. They don't. So what they would do, and many, many lang- languages don't, so what they would do is they would put a numeric value to the alphabet. So A becomes one, B becomes two, <laughs> C becomes three. You guys are smart. They got it. To, you got it. That's how they would do it. Then that's how they would use numbers. So Matthew is a numbers guy. He's like, I want to help you um, remember the genealogy and know that you got these, you know, can put it to memory and put it to use. And I'm going to key it off of David. You know, Jesus is the son of David. And so he uses David as the, the number to go off. So David, this is how, if you were to transliterate um, David from Hebrew to English, it would really come down to three consonants. They didn't have vowels that they used, so it would be Daleth, Vav, Daleth. And then the numeric value to these, um, to these, to the alphabet here would be four plus six plus four, which equals 14. So Matthew is saying, okay, 14 generations, we're using David numerically to help you remember so you can go, okay, three sets of 14, I've got all 14, I've got all 14, I've got all 14, and it helps them with the memory. You're thinking to yourself, what kind of a sick mind comes up with a system like this, right? Let me tell you, a tax collector, okay? But this is where Matthew can actually be very, very helpful because he wants to help them understand and to memorize, and and he wants them to get that Jesus is really, truly um, the king who's entered into history. It's documented. It's fact. And it, it it is clear. So this is why Matthew does this. You see 14, 14, 14, and you see these threes. Now, that's kind of the big picture of it. And again, looking at the, the genealogy itself, there's a, a long list of names. And so big picture, what can I say about the long list of names that, that um, are part of Jesus' uh, lineage? Here's what I can tell you, that they are probably one of the you know, best documented, um, sinful, rebellious, broken people documented. That's part of Jesus' lineage. That's what I want to see all of them, with a few exceptions, pretty much a bunch of broken, messed up people. That's part of Jesus' history, his lineage, and yet Jesus claims them for himself. This is who he is, and it helps us understand that nothing is going to thwart God's plan to bring the Messiah, even sinful, broken people. 
and it's, it's filled with them. And so what I would like to do, instead of going through all the different names, which I'd love to do, but again, you wouldn't, we wouldn't be friends probably at the end of that time, um, let me just highlight a few of the ones that are most startling, the ones that would stand out, that people who, when they're reading about Jesus and they're looking at his lineage, would be like, whoa, I can't believe this is in here. So let me just show you them. And I'll, really fo- I'll focus for a moment on the women, because they truly would have been the most startling names to be found in a genealogy. They would not be found in other people's genealogies at this time. But Jesus includes them. Matthew includes women in his genealogy, which is absolutely stunning. And it's stunning because um, of the low view that the culture had of women at that time. In fact, the Jewish male rabbi, would, um, a, a devout Jewish male, would pray um, a, a number 18 prayers a day. A number of prayers, like a set number of prayers. And right in the middle of it was a prayer that, 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 that was this. God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Because I could not bear to be one of these things. Do you hear that low view of women? That's the low view of women in this culture. And yet Jesus proudly says, I've got women a part of my genealogy. And it really stands out. And it's remarkable, not just that there's women in the genealogy that he, put, he places there, front and center, that would just startle people, but it's who he, who he highlights in the genealogy that's important for us to see too. So if you're a note taker, you want to write this down, you just kind of, kind of just highlight the different women that you can see. So in verse 3, you see the first one, um, you see Tamar. T- Tamar you can read about in um, Genesis 38. And um, it's a story, really, of a, of a woman who uh, uh, seduces her father-in-law. And it's, it's, it's really a, a messy story. Um, you can read about it on your own time. I don't have time to describe it and go into it. But it, it is a messy story. Um, and it really would be shocking to say, okay, well, this is part of the lineage of Jesus. Uh, Tamar is listed. But that's, if that's not shocking enough, then, then we see another name that I want you to highlight. Verse 5, um, you see Rahab. Rahab, you read about in, in Joshua uh, chapter 2, she's the notorious prostitute. And so here Jesus has in his, his um, family line a prostitute. And normally when someone has a proficient profession or a, a background or history that's like, oh, that's kind of like you know, this sort of shady, we want to downplay it or hide it, don't we? I mean, how many of you at your family gatherings talk about great-great-grandma uh, who was the prostitute, right? You, you probably don't or wouldn't do that. But here Jesus says, front and center, hey, here's, there's part of my family line. I claim, I claim Rahab. Um, then right in the same verse, we have the name Ruth. Ruth, uh, we know in Ruth chapter 1, was a Moabite. So Moabites were really a cursed, cursed people. That there was a, a, you read about it in Deuteronomy 23, uh, I think verse 2 or 3. But there's a statement there where, um, the, the Moabite people were not allowed to enter into the assembly of God for um, 10 generations because they were, they were, uh, they were cursed and banned. So that's where she's, where she's coming from. And then there's another woman that you'll see in verse 6, kind of there at the bottom there. It's, it's Uriah's wife. It says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And it's interesting, they don't give her name. Her name is Bathsheba, but they say Uriah's wife. And that's interesting because I think there's a message there in that as well, right? That before uh, she was David's wife, she was Uriah's wife, um, Bathsheba. And the story, as you, you may, may know, is that David uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba. 
in order to cover up. He, um, he plotted to have her husband Uriah killed. Um, she becomes complicit in murder and is a traitor to the country. Other than that, she's great, right? So this is part of the, again, another shocking name in, in, the, in the history and the, the lineage of Jesus. And what I want you to see is not just that they're, their name's shocking, but that three of the four of them are outside of the promises that was, that was given to God's people. That is, Tamar was a Canaanite, um, Rahab was Jerichoite, and Ruth was a Moabite. So they're outside of the kind of the, the, the Israelite people and the promise that was given there, which is a message, of course, in and of itself, that God is interested in all people, all nations, that he's come to be a blessing, to be the savior of the whole world, not just the Jewish people. But, and, but what you see here is you see barrier and barrier and barrier fall down with Jesus coming. When Jesus came, the, the walls become to crumble down. The barrier, the great barrier of the Old Testament, which is Jewish versus non-Jewish, Jew versus Gentile. But when Jesus comes, the barrier, that wall falls down. Anyone can come. When Jesus came, there's this great distinction between male and female. When Jesus come, came, the wall comes down, the barrier. You know what? They're, you're equal. There's, there's value. Women have value. He elevates them. He's proudly putting them in his, in his lineage and putting it up front. And interestingly, he could have put other women there too. He could have put, you know, Rebecca or Rachel or um, Sarah or Leah, you know, all Jewish people, all maybe, you know, had their own challenges, but, you know, shining, you know, maybe a little more shining compared to some of the other ones. But this is where Jesus' heart is. He's for people, for broken, sinful people like you and me. This whole list in his genealogy, by the way, is filled with broken people. And listen, I just say this, if Jesus is willing to claim that as his history and his lineage, guess what? He's willing to claim you and your history and your baggage with it. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that good news? If he's willing to claim that, he's willing to claim you and me, that we can be his spiritual children. And he's not afraid to step in to messy, broken lives. That's who Jesus is. It's crazy. It's an amazing thing. Now, the last woman that I'll show you is Mary. Um, in verse 16, it says this, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. So um, it says this, Joseph was the husband of Mary. So um, they're married. He, Joseph is, is, is uh, Mary's husband. That's clear. But when it comes to Jesus' parents, it's only Mary that's listed. Mary was the mother of Jesus which points to the, you know, the, the mystery of the virgin birth. And it truly is a mystery, but what's clear here is that it was God entering into humanity through Mary, uh, through the virgin birth, and Jesus claiming all uh, deity and humanity at the same time. And with this humanity, he takes on all of our frailty, all of the, the issues we have as in, in our humanness, and yet he did, he did not sin. He did not take, he, he did not sin. So he breaks down this other barrier, this final barrier, because God um, became Jesus who lived a sinless life and died on the cross for our sins. That is, he paid the penalty for our sin. He paid a price that we couldn't pay because he lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved. And that's who, who Jesus is, the final barrier between God and man, Jesus the mediator stands in the middle and he died for us. The Savior has come. This is who Jesus is. 
And this is why it's important for us to, to declare it, and the Matthew makes it, wants to make it very clear for us, um, because Jesus entered into history, and he changed it. But Jesus can also enter, enter into your history and change it. Your history does not have to be your destiny, and Matthew knows that better than anyone. Matthew the tax collector became Matthew the gospel writer. Then you bring to Jesus your, the, the things in your life, even the things that you're ashamed of, you put it in his hands. He can transform it and use it for his glory and his goodness. Isn't this good? This is who Jesus is. He's entered into history, and he's offering himself to you. Through faith, he can enter into your life and change the history and the direction of your life. Let's take a moment. Let's thank him for that. And if you're here today and you have yet to receive him, this might be a moment for you to receive him into your life as well. So as we come before the Lord now in prayer, this is a moment for those of you here especially who um, maybe just are at a spot where you recognize that you need Jesus. And this could be a moment for you to say, Jesus, I need you to enter into my history, into my life. And it's just, it happens simply by trusting in him. See, Matthew, he just, when he was called to follow, he just said, okay, I trust and I follow. And for some of you here today, you just need to stop and say, Jesus, I trust you. And I, I'm deciding to follow you. That's it. You don't have to clean up your life first. You just come and allow Jesus to work in your life and to transform you. For others of you here, perhaps you've at some point placed your faith in Christ. But you're at a spot now where you, your history is um, overwhelming you. The things in your life, the brokenness, the mess, the, it's, it's like a big weight that you're carrying all around with you. And it's, it's there and you still feel it. This could be a moment for you to say, Jesus, I need to hand this over to you. My history, my brokenness, my shame, and ask you to redeem it. Ask you for your forgiveness, for grace and freedom. You pray that prayer. He'll respond. God, we want to just say thank you for entering into humanity, entering into history. And because of who you are and what you've done, you've changed the course of history. And through faith in you and who you are, you can change our history. Thank you that our history does not have to define our destiny because of you and you alone. And so, Lord, we just thank you for that. And we ask that you would work in our lives, in the lives of those around us who we love and we want to see turn to you as well, God. We pray this in your name. Amen.